Hey, I'm Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's within. We just help to unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars and entrepreneurs on the planet so they can be your teacher. Remember, this podcast isn't about high achievement or high success. It's about high happiness. It's about your self-worth. It's about taking you closer to a life of fulfillment, empathy, and understanding. Today, this awaits you. I didn't go to some light. I didn't see some, you know, what some people experience, I've got to say. But I've come back and I've been saved, really, in many ways. And I just feel there's a deep knowingness of who I really am inside me now than before this happened. It was close to not being a nice thing, but you're one of the few people walking the earth who knows how it feels to be celebrated while you're still here. There is no death. We live on. And and I think that's really almost been the last part of a little jigsaw that I've been putting together for many, many years with my spiritual life. What advice would you give to people listening to this who maybe are struggling, maybe are unhappy? Um, How do they begin the journey of looking within themselves? We all think we're going to have to be happy when we achieve things. You can be happy every single day. You can be happy every moment within yourself. Without sounding big-headed, I was, I was just, I was lucky. I was born that way. I was naturally born to play football. It chose me, really. From a very, very young age, four, five, six, I could play with two feet. The press didn't want to hear that when I named the squad. It was more about the story that it was going to be, but it was... The story you know, what, that he smashed up your hotel room, though? Well, he, again, he thumped the door with his hand, with his wrist. That was it? That was it. If I'd have felt he'd have had any chance of playing, then I'd have took him. So here we go then. The former England boss, a Spurs legend, a football man, Glenn Hoddle, on the High Performance Podcast but not really talking about football. He shares a few stories from his life in the game, but the real conversation is about how your life changes when you die and you're brought back to life. This conversation is about realising there is more than just what we see on earth. And as you've heard in that short promo, and as you'll hear in great detail over the next hour or so, Glenn has an incredible spirituality. He has a fascinating take on life. And I want you to come to this with open minds. The problem with football, I find that too often people want to have an opinion. People want to be angry. People want to have an opinion about someone and that stops them from listening. They're so desperate to share their thoughts. They're not actually listening. And all I ask you to do is come to this conversation with an open mind. I want you to come to this conversation if you're a football fan. I want you to come to this conversation if you hate football. I want you to come to this conversation if you want to hear Glenn talk in a way that I certainly have never heard him talk before. And I suppose Glenn reminds me of, uh, as you know, I'm heavily into the Stoics. Glenn reminds me of the, the, the line from Marcus Aurelius. What is your vocation? To be a good person. And as I'm sure you know, the Stoics believed above anything else that our job on this earth was to be a good human being. And I tell you now, Glenn Hoddle is an amazing, good, positive, kind human being. Um, I've got to know him over the last 10 years. I call him a friend. He's someone who has learned so much in his life. He's made some high profile mistakes, which we talk about in this conversation. But he will explain what happened, how it happened and why it happened. 
and he has a really good heart and he is the epitome of someone who radiates a kindness and a gentleness and a real grace about him. So listen, in many ways, forget about Glenn Hoddle, the footballer. This is Glenn Hoddle, the son, the partner, the father, the grandfather and the friend. And I know you will get so much from this conversation. It's going to be great. So stay where you are. Unless, of course, you also want to watch this episode, which you can do on our YouTube channel. But wherever you absorb it, on a podcast, on YouTube, across social media, thank you so much for coming to this episode of High Performance. Let's do it. Let's get you closer to your own version of High Performance. Today's episode comes next. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, Glenn, first of all, welcome to High Performance. Ah, pleasure to be here. Well, let's start where we always begin. What is high performance? I think... um High performance is getting the best out of yourself, whatever that is in life. If you've got a natural talent or if you've got something you're going to work hard at, whatever, sport or no sport, it is about getting the absolute best out of yourself, which takes a bit of time. And I don't think you're doing yourself um, any favours as a person if you if you don't get the best out of yourself and search for that and seek for that. Lovely. And you sit here and you talk from a, from a place of real experience across not just elite sport, but life experience as well. And we will, we will talk about where it all began and your career, which is where we normally start. But I don't feel we can start anywhere apart from at the sort of most recent big event in your life, which is when you had your cardiac arrest at BT Sport. How different is the person sitting opposite us today from the man who would have sat here three or four years ago? Yeah, there is a difference, uh, Jake, uh, without a doubt. I mean, I was just so lucky to be still sitting here, to be honest. You know, if it wasn't for Simon Daniels and uh, on that fateful day in the BT studios, I wouldn't be sitting here, you know. He, He's the guy that saved your yeah, life. Yeah, uh, Simon saved my life, there's just no doubt about it. You know, with the CPR, with the, C- with the cardiac arrest, you have to um, you have to get there within three minutes, really. If not, you've got no chance. I owe him my life. Um, has it changed my life? Yes, it has. There's no doubt about that. Every, every second of my life is, is special now. It always was. You know, I believe in, in that we go on. I don't think this is, this is, I think there's a, a spirit inside us that lives on. It's nothing to do with religion in my, in my opinion. It's just my humble opinion, but it's, Every single one of us live on. So I've had that belief. I had that spirituality within me. I didn't go to some light. I didn't see some, you know, what some people experience, I've got to say. But I've come back and I've been saved, really, in many ways. And I just feel there's a deep knowingness of who I really am inside me now than before I, this happened. Perhaps I was searching and seeking that before. 
but there's certainly something that's been going on since, yeah. And, and what have um, you found? Who no, you found? I, I, I do believe that, I've always believed in the afterlife, I do believe there's a spirit there waiting for us all, a consciousness, and I'm tapping into that consciousness. I think the mind and the body are powerful, and that's what we see, and that's the material side of the world, but I do believe there's another... It's like an onion, you know, you, you peel off one layer and then there's another layer. But I truly believe our consciousness is it, is it that third layer. And that's our real, that's our real sort of ourself. That's our self, really. We think in a way that uh, our mind is us and our body and our material life that we're living in. But this has made me really think, you know, I, I looked into that in many ways for over 30 odd years, 40 years actually searching. But since I've come back from being saved really in many ways, I've got a completely different, deeper outlook than I've ever had before. Well, could you, what is your outlook now then? There's no such thing as death. When, when you, when you actually come to realize that in your consciousness, that there is no, you, and this is my belief, it doesn't matter to anyone else. Everyone's got their individual belief. But when you actually realize there's no death, that fear how you die maybe you might be a bit scared of but um there is no death we live on and and i think that's really almost been the last part of a little jigsaw that i've been putting together for many many years with my spiritual life and um you know what i went through was tough don't you know what my family went through was tough but uh coming through it now i call it extra time and um funny enough that's what the the documentary with BT, we called it, I said I want it to be called Extra Time because I feel as if I'm in extra time, you know? If it goes to penalties, it goes to penalties. <laughs> so do you believe that you that you were saved by Simon for a reason? No, this is it, see. I, don't, I think the reason might be just for myself, inside myself. I mean, I have questioned that. I have sort of sat down in the light of day of my re recuperation and the times when I, you know, I could hardly walk at the beginning. So it's been a long sort of getting back to where I was. And there was times I thought, well, why? Why was I saved? Is there some sort of big thing I've got to do? Is there something I've got to, you know, that they were the questions I was asking. And, and in the end, I've just, it's unfolded within me as if to say, no, this is the reason why. As I say, I've been searching for a long time, but now there's this understanding that there is this real deep third part of us that we don't really know and understand, and it's now opening up. Brilliant. And that's just for me. Yeah. And it's nothing religious. Religion is man-made. This is at a spiritual level. This is a deep within us all. It's a consciousness, an awareness, because our minds are powerful, but they they can camouflage a lot. So is it something that, like, can we think of an example that you would respond differently today than you might have done before? Oh, just incident? any, I mean, your, your, fear, your fears go out the window. You know, when you actually understand that, as I said, there's, you, you know there's no death, there's a lot of th fear about, you know, and it's a fear and, and, and there's a apprehension about things in our life that we don't need to be worrying about. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of stress. Stress is something that's brought on by people. And, and you've got two ways now. And if you go into that deeper part of yourself, which is your true self, I think you cope and deal with things. Well, you don't even have to cope with them because they don't become a problem. You approach it in a different way. And um, I think that's what's happening to, to certainly to me since, you know, I've had this, this extra moments and time. It's a consciousness that you think, well, I'm tapping into something deeper in my self that I 
before. I thought might have been there, but this is unfolding now. And um, there's less fear in you. There's less, this doesn't mean as much. The material life doesn't mean anything. You know, I was so close to death that I did go for seven minutes. But you can't take anything with you. You can't take your material things with you. So it's how you do things and what you do is far more important than what we achieve in this material sort of world. Brilliant. And you know what, as a, as a friend and a colleague of yours, right, I love hearing you talk like that. And I love the fact that that is how you feel because I think that, you know, I can still see there's a slight hesitancy maybe with you to talk like this because people judge, right? And we live in a world where everyone has an opinion. People don't carry empathy with them. But how wonderful to feel like that, to feel that freedom, to feel that sense of serenity, really, that all the little things that do get us down and can get us down count for nothing. And, you know, you're coming at this from the position of a former professional footballer, lauded as highly as you can be as a footballer, managed your country, successful manager at club level. Yet even you've realised that actually all of those things don't count. What you did does not matter. How you did mm. it does matter. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you can't take your medals with you. You can't take your achievements. You can't take your bank balance or your big house. And these are the things that I think in, in, in life we always we get mixed up in. It's how we treat each other. It's as simple as that in many ways. And in this, uh, in this modern day world, you know, perhaps we've, we've took our eyes off that. Absolutely. I think one of the, th one of the nicest things I've heard you say before, and it was close to not being a nice thing, but you're one of the few people walking the earth who knows how it feels to be celebrated while you're still here. Most people, mm. it's not a good ending to their cardiac arrest and the no. celebrations of what they've achieved and the way they lived their life uh, happen without them seeing it. You've been in this amazing mm. situation where you've seen the outpouring of love and yeah. the fear that we all have for you and your mm. life and you're still here to savour it and to have a genuine understanding of what yeah. you mean to millions of people around the world, but most of all to your family and especially mm. your grandchildren. Yeah, I was very... Very lucky, very lucky. And you, you were a part of that day, as you know. Mm. Um, and we've had that conversation ourselves, which is quite incredible. Because the, the, the thing about that actually as well, Jake, is that I, it was really my, my family and everyone else that went through the stress because I, I was unconscious. I was gone, really. Let's be fair. If it wasn't for Simon, but then I'm in the hospital and I'm, I'm out of it. The next thing I know was when I came round in the hospital. So all this was happening and, and then it, you know, it was, it was, it was a good point you make. It was almost like, um, it's almost like I did go and people were talking about, it and no, I'm still here sort of thing. You know, <laughs> I haven't gone. And I have to, I have to have that sense of humor about it. I have to, often I say to people just to, you know, it's my sort of sense of humor, I suppose. And it's happened to me, so I can say it. But I used to say, you know, things like, it's amazing how you, when you, when you hang your boots up or as a sportsman, you finish, you become a better player or a better manager or whatever and then when you pass you come you become an even better player <laughs> so it's uh i went through that and it's a strange one to well not a strange one a good one to come out at the other end yeah so when you were hearing some of these uh, i don't want to use the term obituaries <laughs> about you about your your brief passing what were the values that people said about you that really resonated that you thought that is how i'd like to be remembered listen you want to you want to be remembered with some of the achievements that you you do on you know in your in your career of course you do i'm not saying that means nothing but it's more you know the the relationships that you have with people 
doing them things, whether it was on the pitch, whether it was a manager, whether it was working on TV, everyday life. You know, the person that I met in the coffee shop just a minute ago before I come here, you, you know, it, that is life. That is the most important thing. At that time, in that coffee shop, to me, that is that moment. We can't, we can't do anything about yesterday and we can't do anything about tomorrow. But at that moment, we are living in the moment. That guy was the most important person to me when I was talking to him. And I had a photo done with him and we chatted. And that was the most important thing in my life. I couldn't do anything about this conversation now we're having. And tonight I can't do anything now. I will do later on, whatever it is. And that's, that's really how, how, you know, you see life. Yeah. I love that sense of presence. Do you almost have this sense that maybe, you know, sort of you've been woken up to, to what you believe and yet you see other people walking around obsessed with the new car or delaying their happiness until they get a great job or waiting until they get a promotion at work before they feel validated. And really, all you're really saying is none of those things provide a validation for us as human beings. No, absolutely. There's no judgment there whatsoever. You know, years ago, I would have been similar to that. You know, I searched different theories and religions. You know, I looked into Buddha. I looked into Christ. I looked into Krishna. All these things over 40 odd years of searching and reading and, you know, sort of just taking everything in and then filtering what I, what made sense to me and what didn't make sense. But since the cardiac arrest and what happened, it seems like something has happened. There's another set of, I say this in football terms sometimes, another set of curtains have opened for me. And in football, as you grow as an experienced player, when you're 35, it, the game's different to when you're 18. These these other sets of curtains seem to open. And in life, I think that happens as well. It certainly has happened to me. So, no, I, I understand, you know, we all understand. We're all the same. We're living in an earthy world. We're living in this environment. This is, in a way, our test, in a way. Our spirit actually gets tested left, right and centre. And there's no harsher, probably, way of... um being tested than, than on earth, than, than this material world that we live in, uh, because you can just get carried away with it. But, you know, it's something that's deep inside each and every one of us. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go down one religion. We're all connected with the, you know, through this consciousness. See, what's striking, Glenn, is that your curiosity is quite remarkable in many ways that you said you've been asking these questions for over 40 years. What was it that piqued you, this curiosity in the well, first place? Damien, that's a good question because normally some people hit the, the depths in life before they actually look at themselves and think, what is there to, I was the other way. I was about 27, 28 years of age. And I write this about in, in the book and, I had everything really. I had a lovely career, fabulous career. I had a lovely family, kids, marriage, house, car, you know, everything was there. But there was like, all I can say is like asking this great big question mark inside myself. And that was it. One day I thought, why am I, there must be more to life. And that was then, that was really setting off on that journey. Then I went searching and looking down different avenues, all the different avenues I've probably learned a lot from. So, yeah, and I've been searching that and it's been continuing. 
up right up until I'm talking now. So that's the exciting side about it all. It's, it's it, there to be unfold. I, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, The Second Mountain. It was recommended to us by one of our previous guests, uh, by a guy called David Brooks that talks about a lot of people climb the first mountain of a career and the house and all the trappings of success that you describe. But it's those that get off that mountain. Well, I'll get to the top of it and realize it's not the view's not worth the climb that then go to that second mountain of being curious and connection with other people and what the kind of way we behave, where real happiness lies. See, I think that's interesting. I haven't read that book, no, but I think we are all searching outside ourselves. That's the only thing I can say. I think we've got, if you search within yourself, that's where you'll find the connection. To me, I think it's a, a creator that is of, of a consciousness and, and I'm, there's an awareness out there that goes deeper within us. So we're, we're looking to go to different religions, to go to the top of a mountain or the bottom of the ocean to find, but it's within ourselves. That creator's within ourselves. That little spark is in there. And I think that's where I've been searching and searching. But I think after this cardiac arrest, it's, there's a lot of things happening that, that are just unfolding again, even deeper than I had before. So, you know, um, Thank God for Simon and, and thank God that I'm still sitting here talking about it. Could you, would you share what those things are that are unfolding that feel different? Um, just everyday life, every, everyday situations that you think about. There's a serenity, there's a calmness, there's no panic, there's no worry about, you know, if there is a problem, it's not a real problem. It's an illusion in many ways. It's there. I can make a decision on it. I think there's deeper things that I'm now thinking, well, yeah, but if I look at it in a positive way, that will dissolve. It's quite simple for me. I think you've got a, you know, you've got a body, you've got a mind and you've got a spirit. And it's a, th a three dimensions, really. And I think it's the spirit side that's really opened up in me since it happened. So once you tap into that, I think the fears go out in your life. You know, the joy comes in even more joyous and you don't have to wait for the, we all think we're going to have to be happy when we achieve things. You can be happy every single day. You can be happy every moment within yourself. So without being crass and Glenn, do you think that if you, if, if this realization would have happened when you were still playing football, do you think it would have helped you? Without any shadow of a doubt, it would have been wonderful for that to have evolved and opened up when I was younger, when I was playing. I think it would have, it would have been immense for me. But also when I, if I'm really truly honest, I think it would have been a test as well because suddenly to actually understand that some of this could be illusionary really in many ways, the earthy side, the material, if it ends up in within yourself, you think to yourself, it doesn't mean that much. Then you've got a bit of a conundrum out of how do you then go out and play football and try and win and compete? So that may have been a test. I think as with my experience now, looking back, I think I'd have coped, but I'm not sure if I would have been 22 or 27 then and found out about this, whether I would have coped, whether I would have had to say, I don't know if I can actually achieve what I need to do as a footballer. If I could have dealt with it and had the harmony and had the balance right, oh my word, it would have, it would have helped me so much, so much more. What I think is really powerful about this conversation is that you're not sitting here saying, this is my set of beliefs and you have to follow them to be happy. What you're saying is, just explore, just see what might be out there. And it's so easy, isn't it, for people to be dismissive or to say, oh, you can't just be happy because you change your mindset. 
You absolutely can. You know, everyone can find this. What what advice would you give to people listening to this who maybe are struggling, yeah. maybe are unhappy? Look, um, how do they begin the journey of looking within themselves? Well, that's the thing. It's don't go from your mind. You know, when you, you can think about things, but there is another part to you. There's a deeper part to you that is aware. There's an awareness how about you, f- you. How do you plug into that, though? I- well, you go within. You have to go within. That's why I think people like meditation and that. They switch the, the material life off. They switch their conscious mind off. Don't forget, there's, this is what we're talking about. There's a consciousness inside us. It's so much. There's science to tell you that. You know, the conscious mind is the smallest part of our mind, and we live in that. We're living that most of our day. When you go to sleep, you don't die, do you? So your mind is still going. So when you wake again, there's things that's happened deep inside you. And that's where, that's where I'm saying to people, that's where you need to go. You need to go one step further than your mind. You have to close that mind. You have to quiet your mind to go into this sort of position where there's an awareness about you that is your true self. And once you tap into that, then think these things unfold. Because if you think it's just the mind, you can have a positive mind, you can have a negative mind. It's your choice. That's the power of our mind. But there's a deeper part of us, there's an awareness inside us, the true spirit, that spark in us that is, we're all the same, in my opinion. That's where we live on. That's where you seek. That's where you go to. And if you go that deep and you find yourself, then all these things unfold. I think it's worth pointing out as well, Damien, like, there are always cynics, right? They exist everywhere. What what bad thing can come of exploring? Do you know That's what I mean? Exactly. Those people go, oh, I'm not doing that. Well, the worst thing is you find nothing and you carry on as you were. <laughs> exactly. And everything's fine. That's right. And that's your right. That's your right Absolutely. to do that as well. That's the that's the beauty of it. As I said, I, in football, I've used the terminology, and I think in life is the same. There's no rights or wrongs. It's, it's what you find out yourself. It's what's right for you and what's right, wrong for you. And, and that's how you have to live. So that curiosity, if I can take you back to the start of your career, Glenn, one thing that intrigued me reading about you was that you must have been one of the first footballers in the UK that went and sought out help from a psychologist. I think he was called John Sayer. Is that right? When well, you were at Tottenham? Yeah, well, I didn't really seek out. What we did do is that Keith Birkinshaw and Peter Shreves, and I think Stevie Perriman, our skipper, was very close to Keith and, and Peter. I think it was them that seeked out in 1980 sports psychologists to come to the club back then. Back then, no one was doing it. Me included, all the lads were a little bit, ooh, what's this? You know, I weren't sure about it, to be quite honest, at the time. He was a lovely, lovely guy. And Chris Connolly as well. There's two of them came in. But then eventually we started to get some confidence. He had us in team building meetings and stuff like that. And then we had individual meetings. That's when I really started to think about what he was saying. I thought, oh, I like this. This is this is quite interesting. This I'd never heard of anything about it. Yeah. All the little techniques he was coming out with, I thought, this is a bit of me. I think this, I could, yeah, this is going to help me. Whereas before, for a couple of months, we were all a little bit, you know, footballers were like, it yeah, was, yeah. what's this? You know, I don't know if I can swear on this program, but you know, what, what is, what is this all about? It's a load of rubbish, you know, and we're all the same, but then slowly but surely. And you know what? We, that team, that team just gelled. We had wonderful talent in the team, but there was just that little bit, something missing. Players travel together on coaches, on trains, on planes and whatever, they very rarely talk to each other about the game. They talk about 
music or they might have a bit of banter and taking the piss out of each other. All them things, you spend hours and hours, but you, you have a team meeting and that's that. back in the day, that was normally the management talking at you. But we had these round table sort of open chats with the players. He made us talk to each other. He then sat aside and we spoke to each other. And if you went to talk to him, he'd say, no, 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 I want you to look at him. If it was Garth Crooks or Ozzy or... No, look at each other. Talk, make contact with your eyes and talk to each other. What do you like about when he does good things and tell him what you don't like when you're out on the pitch. And we started to build between this team. And you know what happened? We were successful. We were, we were fighting for it over the late 70s. Ozzy and Ricky come from the World Cup, which was amazing. But there was still a problem. This, not a problem, but we still couldn't, we couldn't gel together. Suddenly, yeah, he bought Crooks and Archibald, which was the end of the jigsaw. And we, the, the creation that we were getting as a team, we had finishers in the team. But it was this gelling of the, what I call the invisible walls were just being broken down between relationships between the team and it was it was just amazing and suddenly the confidence that came the the feeling that we had for each other the respect that we had for each other we didn't have to get on with them didn't have to be best mates with everyone but you had to respect each other and suddenly it just took off we won the fa cup in 81 we were going for four trophies in 82 which we managed to win when we should have really done better then we won the uefa cup the year after it was just incredible what, and what about John Sire had done and, and, and what about you individually Glenn I've, I've read that didn't yeah. he sort of give you that mantra of Lord of the Manor he just a, no he just I'll tell you what he did he, he said look every single person he talked as a person not as a player he said but if you've got a problem he said and you don't want it to affect your performance a little bit to what we're saying he said you've got to You've got to visualise. I was always a visual player anyway, naturally. I used to visualise stuff when I was a kid, really. I used to play in the garden. There was 50,000 there, you know. I even commentated then, uh, <laughs> back in the day when I think about it, when I was eight or nine in the garden. So I was visualising going past Bobby Moore. I could visualise. I could see it in my eye, in my mind's eye. So that was something that hit me when he said visualise. And I started visualising. He said, if you've got a problem... Don't let it affect your performance, he said. So I want you to visualise putting that down. And nowadays, there's a lot of these. It's to a penny, probably. But this was back in the early 80s. You know, write down your problem. Visualise putting it in a drawer. Lock it away. Put, make sure you it's not there so it doesn't affect your performance. And I thought, actually, I quite like that. So I did that on numerous occasions. And I, that stayed with me all my life. Uh, what, what was he asking you to do? Write down problems, the what, things what, you wanted what, to solve? What I was or? worried about that might have gone in, blocked in yeah. my, my performance. We're talking about performance yeah. here. So he, he would say, visualise you're writing it down on a bit of paper, whatever the problem would be. Maybe there might have been a problem with one of my kids, might have been ill or wh whatever. I'm just giving an example. Whatever they may be, write them down, visualise it, open the drawer, put it in the drawer, lock the drawer. Don't throw the key because you're going to have to go back to them problems, but to then go and perform, then go and see yourself walking onto the pitch. And I'd do that. That was an individual bit of work that I did with him then that, that as I say, stayed for life. I took John with me to Southampton when I was manager, and uh, there was a lot of great work we did there. Um, and the players... Took, took to it eventually and I saw players blossom like we like it happened in the 80s with Tottenham I saw it happen to particularly Southampton the players took to it I saw a young Wayne Bridge who was 17 years of age wouldn't say 
wonderful talent, didn't know he was a wonderful talent, wouldn't say boo to a goose. And suddenly he made us have these big, big meetings where you had to say something. So the pencil would be handed round and it'd come to Bridgie, it'd, it'd be all red, it'd go red, it'd be really uncomfortable. But he said something about the game at the weekend or whatever, even if he said, oh, I didn't like training today, we made him talk. Suddenly, three months, four months, five months later, he was expressing himself, he was talking what the team needed. He flourished and he become a terrific player, as we all know, went on to play for England, blah, blah, blah. He's not like that now, by the way, because he's in the same stable at 1010. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but no, that was Bridgie at the beginning. Just one example. And it was lovely to see him grow. And it, I don't think that would have happened if we hadn't have had that, that side of, of his, the mentality and the allowing him to grow himself. Having those meetings, the other defenders talking to him and saying, you don't realize how good you are. And when your peers say that, you you could play for England, Bridgie, in their meetings. You know, they had the back four and the goalkeeper would go in with John. And 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 then they went on and I think we, at the time, I think we went nine Premier League games without clean, clean sheets. And that unit with the goalkeeper and the back four was incredible what he did there. And they're all the same players. They've all got the same ability they had before. But what we're talking about here is is the power of sharing the power of an emotional connection with other people absolutely and getting your mindset right so people always talk about you as being a naturally gifted footballer to what percent do you think your success as a footballer was in the mind and what percent was in the body mine's, mine's quite a difficult one to answer in a way because I, without sounding big-headed i was i was just i was lucky i was born that way i was naturally born to play football it chose me really from a very very young age four five six i could play with two feet and you do need the mentality with, to go with any talent because, again, we're going back to how we really started about high performances, getting the best out of yourself. It would hurt me as a kid if the ball went over my foot, if I were under my foot, if I miscontrolled one pass, it would hurt me. Literally inside, that wouldn't be good enough. So my mentality was that strong. It was that. But the other side, I loved football. So it was so much in my DNA. I put the hours in because of the love of the game. I would be constantly playing football as a kid. I would be absolutely mad. I was mad on football. My mum used to drive her mad, bless her. You know, I'd come in from the dad playing with me out in the park. It'd be pitch black. And he'd sort of, I'd round the corner, pretend he'd gone in. I'd be out there sort of crying with the ball under my arm. And then I'd go in and then I'd start kicking the ball around in the lounge. Even when I went upstairs, I had a sponge ball that I'd play in the, in the bedroom to, you know, it was it was football, football, football. So I'd play against a wall for hour after hour after hour, just on my own. So it was, I put the hours in. So someone could be there saying, you've got to put the hours in, you've got to put the work in. Talent's not enough. But I was lucky in the sense that I had this burning love within me to play football from a very young age. And that hasn't really left me, to be honest. I can't get bored with football. Me and Jake were talking off air and I remember reading uh, Terry Gibson when he was a young player at Spurs yeah, describing the gym where he had yeah. different targets on the wall. Yeah, and it was great. How, but he was describing how even when you were an established first team player, just watching you just loving going in there, even when nobody was asking you to, to work on it. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the... Uh, it was. Uh, that was me going back to when I was a kid because I'd find a wall somewhere. I used to drive the neighbours mad. Oh, Pete and Mary next door. I apologise. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
that's what we did at Tottenham for hours and hours from 11 to, till I was 15, till I signed, signed on, well, 16 apprentice. We had every Tuesday and Thursday in the ball court and they had circles, lines, squares, and you had to hit the square, hit the line, above the line, come in, all the skills. We'd spend an hour and a half. That was our training sessions all through those years. So playing against the wall was just how, how I was brought up. It's sad now because where can you, where can you see a kid playing against the wall? They can't do it. And it was funny. I went to the beautiful Tottenham training ground years ago when it was first built. Wonderful. It's, it's immaculate. It really is. And I said to the guy who was taking us around, I said, where's your, where's the wall? Where you got your walls? And he looked at me and I went, he said, no, we've got the gym inside. I said, no, but you got, you've got no walls outside. For kicking a ball against when you. And he went, no. I said, all the millions of pounds that they've, they've spent. I remember when I went to Chelsea, I put two walls up outside and we ended up having to put them on wheels because we'd wear them out, obviously on the grass. So we would wheel them about and they were just a bit bigger than a goal. And it was for the youngsters. It was for the, the academy boys, really. I said, let's have them. And then in the end, our first team players would do it and we'd have some sessions against it. And then you'd look out the office and you'd see some players, not all of them, but some would spend hours. Listen, Give me a ball and a wall. I don't, you don't need a coach. You don't need your dad. You just need time and the love of doing it. And you will become a better player. Two-footed, inside your foot, outside your foot. If you can do that, and you will improve, you won't get worse. If you can do that, you've got angles to play passes that others haven't got. And that's a massive advantage. Wonderful. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings on to you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12-month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift and many of you may have heard already that in 2023 I decided to give MindLift a go. The neuroscience-based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own 
personal neuro coach. And look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using MindLift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better. And I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. Let's move forward then to the management period of your career. And whether it's at um, Southampton or at Swindon or with England or Chelsea, wherever, what culture did you want to create as a manager? Well, I knew... I knew how I wanted them to play, whatever team I wanted to play football with a balance. You have to have a balance. Um, but it was a passing game. It was a technical game. So I wanted to, and I also wanted to improve every player. Yes, I was there to get results. Yes, we had to win games to be competitive, to, to get promotion at Swindon, for instance. Um, but I wanted to improve players. That's where I was. It wasn't just about setting up the team. I, I wanted to improve them individually and tactically as a team as well. So there was a lot of work to go in. Some some managers don't look at it that way. It's like, do this, do that, and we're going to win whatever which way. I wanted us to play a certain way, but I, I also wanted them to, to improve as players. They weren't all going to like you. It wasn't about liking people. It's about respecting people. And I think I had that as a manager, um, but I respected every single player I worked with. Certain, you know, it's been aimed at me over the years wrongly that uh, that because I was a technical player that I didn't have patience. I had more patience than anyone. I realised I wasn't a great editor of the ball, so you know I couldn't judge anyone who couldn't trap a ball or pass a ball. Yeah, because they used to say that you. You were the best player in training and you showed off well, and got annoyed if players weren't good enough. But that's a myth, no, right? That's it's a myth. It's a myth. It really is. I mean, I was a player manager for four years, obviously with Swindon and Chelsea. So that was different. I, I had to be good enough to play in the team. As a player manager, you can't take somebody's place because they'll resent that. But if, as long as you're affecting the game in a positive way, which I was, then I was okay. Um, but when you're a manager, no, no, that was just a, a bit of a fallacy. I joined in if a team was one player down sometimes with England because normally you'd get a lad over from the reserves to join the first team if somebody's pulled a muscle or whatever because you, your training sessions, you need them for a reason. So if you want 8v8, you know, it's not working if it's 8v7. So I would step in with England because we didn't have a reserve side. It was a squad that was there and... I was still young enough to just about get around and play. So once that ball comes out, you, you do as best as you can. Um, that's all that was. And it was on very isolated, you know, it was what press, it was a perception that somebody, some press had uh, picked up, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't, I had my career, but no, I, I had more patience than anyone. And that's what Arsene Wenger saw in me before I saw it myself. Actually, he said, have you thought about going to coaching when I had a knee problem? 
in, in Monaco the last year. And I said, no, not really. I hadn't thought about it. He said, Glenn, I think you should think about going into coaching or management. He said, you've got a patience with players. You've got this, you've got this, uh, you know, you know the game. And it was, that was the first seed actually that was planted in my mind. And then I started to look at the game a little bit different actually with through sort of coaches' eyes for a year rather than uh, as a player. I love that philosophy of, of wanting to go in and improve players. And it, it sounds almost self-evident, but did you ever find players that weren't interested in improving or weren't open to new ideas? Not many, but there were a few, on a, a handful that you, I think, I'm not sure they want to actually put the yard yards in. Right. I would tell them about that wall and I'd say, look, Let's go and do it. And I do some drills with them. And I say, look, there's no reason why you can't spend as much, as many hours as you want. And I'd keep an eye on that kid or player. And I'd never, I'd see him going after training and he wouldn't be out there. And I thought, well, you can only, in the end in life, you can only lead a horse to water. It's an old saying, but can't make them, you can't force them to drink. So I thought, well, I'll leave that with you. That's your, that's your problem. And, 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 he was probably happy where he was at the level he was at. It was like sometimes there was not, there was a fear in him to actually go to another level, if you see my point. And uh, that was quite sad. And as much as you can try and, f you can't force them to do it, but you give them an opportunity, you give them a chance. I, I love giving people second chances. I did that with my academy, things like that. But in the end, you have to leave them if they're not going to, and then you, your energy then goes on the people that are positive and that are going to be, you know, so improve that, your team. So the higher up you went in terms of as a coach, eventually mm. as, a, as a national team manager, yeah. what kind of mindset did you find amongst players there? Much easier. Was it? Much easier. They were the reason why they were playing for England. Their minds were strong. They wanted to get the best out of themselves. They wanted to uh, achieve things. They would always set the bar high. You know, that's what international football, you know, people like Paul Scholes and Alan Shearer, when you're working with those and my, young Michael Owen comes in at 18, blows us all away. You know, David Beckham, wonderful players, Paul Ince, great leaders we had as well in that team. But every single one of them, like myself, when I was a kid, if that, if that, you know, that ball went under their foot, it would hurt them. Their, their, their pride in their performance, wanting to become better. And this is a, obviously at a world level is going to world cup. So you obviously got to be better It's every level go that you go up. Um, no, they'd push themselves. I can't remember any England player, none of them, none of them that I'd say, Oh, I'm not sure he really wants it. You know, wants to get the best out of himself, every single one of them. And that's the reason why they were playing for England, you know, because they're at, the, they're at, they're at their best. I'm really interested in this conversation around England because although you were a brilliant footballer, it's very different when you're the manager. And you got the England job at 38, right? Which seems young to me, but I suppose the older you get, the younger everyone seems. But 38 years old, <laughs> was there any element of imposter syndrome when you turned up for the very first time in front of those world-class England internationals? There's some ways of looking at it because sometimes when you're only 38, and I'd only just finished playing at 38, I'd only just hung my boots up. So my mind actually is, was still very much in touch with a player. If you're like now, if I'm 64, you bridge that gap. Yeah, but it's a long time since I've played going through that 
emotion of playing. So I was, I was in touch with that, if you see all my point, you know. Yes, it was young to be international football and probably I took the job in the end. I had tough decisions to make, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I thought, how can you turn your country down? I might never, ever get that opportunity again. It might be something I regret for the rest of my life. Did I think I was too young football-wise? No. And I think that proves, I think it's 61% win percentage. So I think I've proved that I wasn't too young on the football front. I had some great players to work with. We were going places, believe me. We were playing some beautiful football, great football, playing three at the back, a bit different to what you know the norm was at the time. Looking back now, would you say 38 and, and, and the situation for the England job off the pitch, dealing with the press, dealing with the media, dealing blah, 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 Probably, yeah. I'd deal with that much easier now, without a shadow of a doubt. But was I too young to take that job at 38? If I'd have come out with a, didn't qualify for the World Cup, come out with a, I don't know, 25% win percentage, whatever it may be, I think, yeah, actually, Glenn, you were too young. But I don't think I was, if I'm honest. And I think a lot of the, the way we were playing, the way we were going on, I think that's the frustration of the job, losing the job when I lost the job. It was... um it was where we could have took it, where we could have took it. And the exciting thing for me was always about Rio, funny enough. Rio Ferdinand was a wonderful, wonderful centre-back. He was a Rolls-Royce of a centre-back. But believe me, he never had the opportunity to play in a back three. And I'd have had him playing in a back three, which would have took him to another level and would have took England to another level because he would have been coming out a bit like the Germans play their sweeper. I'd have had him coming out on the ball, even off the ball, because I knew he could cope going into midfield, making a spare man. And then we would do... So there, there was... That's just one example where I felt we were going with a, a crop of experienced players and a crop of young, exciting players as, as Rio, Michael Owen, David Beckham and, and Paul Scholes. As long as also still having your Shearers and your Adams and your Inces and your Sheringhams, the experience was still there. And you know what? Any manager worth his salt will always say that's the template, that's the formula, the balance that you want. Experience with talent, young talent. We had some players. You know, what we could have done was, was, it was frustrating not to have that opportunity. So if we touch on the reasons why that you didn't get the chance to do that then, in terms of the narrative that was around the, the interview that you gave, that was around beliefs, that, that like, and as we've spoken about, they were your beliefs. It almost seems ridiculous these days that nobody would criticise somebody if they had a Catholic belief or a Christian belief or they, or they were a Muslim, and yet you were castigated for your beliefs. Well... It- it's strange because before the World Cup, um, I spoke about my beliefs in the, in the spirit and, and my beliefs on that. Um, didn't seem to have any problems then. You know, I was on BBC Radio 1 or uh, 2, whatever it was at the time, but there was no problems there. So you suddenly you get a few, you know, we started off the Euros, we lost the first game. So you know what it's like, Jake, in football. So there's a, you know, suddenly the press, the change, there's a bit of a change. So suddenly that was looked into. Now, when it comes down to, I've gone on record on the book and that's never been my belief about the disabled. It's never what I said, never what I would ever believe. What I, what I said is that it's, it's a much deeper con- conversation. I remember saying that at the time, it's a five hour, it's a lifetime conversation, not just a throw in conversation at the back end of talking about France 
who was the reason why we were talking. So that's the reason why. And then it exploded. And then in the end, the FA didn't show enough strength really to back me. And it was pretty evident there came a time when I thought, these people are not, you know, they're not backing me here when they should be. And uh, it was pretty evident that um, there was a part of me saying, I don't want to work for these people anymore. And uh, it, it went the way it was. But on the football front, that's that was the real frustration that I knew where we could have gone with that team, with that squad. It was a team that was ready to be even better than the team that we took to France for the World Cup in, in 98. And the way we would have played, you know, looking back in life, you know, that was, that was the most frustrating thing as a, in, my, in my football career. Do you, do you feel you needed more support? I mean, you were... Th- yeah. You were, you, how old were you when, when you lost your job? Um, well, it could only have been 40, 41. But the, the FA wasn't like the FA is now, you know, the infrastructure, what it is, it's, there wasn't, it was, there was not enough people really there for supporting you. You know, there was a lot of stuff went on that I thought was quite, at the time they were doing their best, but there wasn't enough personnel to cover every single angle because the job got really big over probably about six or seven years, a little bit before me. We, you know, we had the, the Euros in, in England. The, the thing exploded, if you remember, in 96. And I don't think the FA went with it. So there was always this, uh, you always felt you were a little bit out on a limb at times for well, that you job. sort of left your own devices, you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that interview was a prime example you know, someone should have been with me. Someone should have been saying, you know, out the bot, you know, out the goodness of my heart, I said I had a five-minute conversation with him. He went off on an angle about my beliefs, and I said, yeah, I've been on radio explaining that. And in the end, I thought, oh, this, where's this going? What's he keeps he keeps bringing up the disabled. And in the end, I said, no, well, let, you know, it's a five-hour discussion. Let's leave it at that. And that's that was it. I didn't think anything of it, to be quite honest, at the time. Um, and then it, it exploded. So I think someone, it, was un, un, it wasn't as professional as it is now or became probably, you know, a lot very quickly after that in many ways. Um, that's a prime example. Someone you know better than anyone, someone the press man probably should have been with me to say, oh, you know, stop the interview there or whatever. It's very difficult, isn't it, from, from your perspective? I, I just, um, I wonder whether they're, despite the fact you were a brilliant player, and then had this great career and then ended up as the England manager. Instead of being celebrated and everyone looking for positivity everywhere, I wonder whether there was elements where people were determined to misunderstand what was going on. I can't answer that for yeah. you, Jake. That's, that's for, for other people to, to, I wouldn't know. All, all you do is you get your head down and you do your job. You do what you, you know you're good at and, and do it as best as you can. And that's what we were doing, you know. But during that period, Glenn, like, where you, like famously Eileen Drury was somebody mm. that's always associated with you. What did you have to do to get the buy-in from the FA to be able to bring in someone like Well, what it was, that was, that was slightly different. Somebody, actually, I mentioned it the other day and somebody looked at me and said, oh, I didn't realise you knew her when you were 17. They thought I'd just brought her in at that England right. time. The reason I, the reason I brought that, because again, it goes back to my faith. At 17, 18, she healed my hand. She healed me. Right. Virtually, I was out for two months and it was. And how did that, you meet her? How did that relationship? Well, it was just by pure chance. It was right. by, I took her daughter Michelle out one day and it was just, uh, went back to the house and that was, it. that's how we met. Um, but that was when I was 17. So when that happens and then, 
I went back for different times. Same thing sort of happened. And she was healing me. And I was like, wow. The trigger didn't, it didn't really drop, actually. It didn't make me search a little bit more like I did when I was 28. So I went all through them years thinking, oh, this is great. This is, you know, we stayed friends. So someone, when I said about England, said, oh, I didn't realise you knew her when you were 17. I said, yeah, that's the reason why. And I'd used her at club level. So she'd done some fantastic work with players, you know, and I'd seen it and they'd seen it. So why would you not use it? It was like an extension to the medical staff in many ways. Why would you not use it for your for your good at England? And we did that. We did it for months before. And then suddenly, like everything, there's just something was going to get out. So I said, right, let's bring it out. Let's say it before it's done. And I just said, yeah, we use a healer. I've used them, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but knowing that possibly you, you were going to, back in the day particularly, you're going to get, it's going to get spun. But I thought, well, let's preempt it rather than wait for them to, to say what they want to say. And, uh, that's, but I've, I've, you know, I knew about healing when I was in France. I went to a healer. I, I, I've experienced it. It works and it works for many people and it's worked for me and my family for many years since I've been playing, since I've been England manager. It's a part of my spiritual life. You know, it's, um, you cut your finger, right? You don't think about it. What happens in three or four days time? Healed up. Still st starts to heal. And that's without even thinking about it. So there's people out there that can accelerate that. That's all it is, you know. And um, that's the simplified way of looking at it. And and so that's why I was doing it. And that's why I used it on players. It was, it was almost like, for me, in my mind, it was natural. It was normal. And it was an extension to the medical staff in many ways. It's a bit like the conversation at the beginning, though. Like, I wonder whether you were... Uh ahead of your time in these kinds of conversations. And I think now if someone said that, people would go, well, you know what? Mm. Try it, yeah. Oh, let's be open-minded, give it a whirl. Again, what's the worst that can happen? Nothing bad. What's yeah, the best that can happen? You heal yeah. quicker. But 20-odd years yeah. ago, no, but even, it was even, different. Well, even, you're right, uh, Jake, but also even scientifically they'll tell you that, that how things change, energy, energy changes. We're energy, really. Your body, your cells, they're all connected to this consciousness that I'm talking about. If you put your mind in a positive mind, your cells and your atoms change. You as a person, your demeanor change. We know it. Science tells us this. Medical people are telling us. You know, we still say in the world's flat, uh, you know, it's a flat yeah. world. No, listen, so, science you know, says it, optimists. Absolutely. Better things, good things happen to optimists. That absolutely. is scientifically proven yeah, because yeah. of your mindset. Because you're a magnet. You can draw positive or negative. Simple as that. When you, th when you, when you think about it, your mind is such a powerful tool. So you could, your choice is you can be positive on anything or negative, wherever it is. And I think that's, that's something that's, you know. And I'm sure you there. would have had to draw on the positivity after that experience. How, like, does it still hurt the way the England job ended and? No, it doesn't hurt. And the op it's missed opportunities. Frustration. Right. Frustration. On the football side, you know, on the other side, if people don't understand, you know, that's that they're where they're at in their own lives. But on the football side, having that taken away, for me, the frustration is the players that we had, the excitement of playing those young players, gelling them even more for another two years with the experienced players that I had was exciting. And you'd obviously been through that World Cup in France where, fame, where David Beckham was famously sent off. Did that experience you know drawing on the example you spoke about with John Sayer at Tottenham bring the team together and galvanize the team where 
you could, felt that would have enhanced it as well. Well, we we actually obviously we went out on the day, so it would, if we'd have got through that game, which we were so closely, you know, we came very close to getting through even with ten men. Um, no, David's situation was a poor refereeing decision. That was a yellow card. I think most people would say it was a yellow card. I was shocked when I saw the red. But as a manager, at that moment, you have to think, what are you going to do next? That's what the country wanted. That's what I had to do as a manager, is what are you going to do next? So my decision-making was quickly what I was going to do with the pitch. Do I take another striker off? I kept two on. We did what we had to do. Terry Byrne went in and looked after David at that moment. I think if we'd have stayed in the, in the, in the tournament, if we'd have won the penalty shootout, my word... That would have, I think, galvanised us even more. The, the belief at levels that beating a team like that with 10 men when we were so close, we thought we'd gone through with the golden goal. So the emotion, I've never been involved in such an emotional game as that. The ups and downs of that game are quite incredible. Um, it really was. So, you know, eventually we got knocked out. So we, we, I can't really give you that answer at that time. But, um, but it I was, meant in terms of like Beckham obviously came back stronger as a character oh, for David it. Did. So if you'd have had him richer for that experience, yeah. you think that would have enhanced? Yeah, I mean, what happened to David was a disgrace at the beginning. You know, how the country uh, treated him in many ways. He showed such strength to come back and, and have the career that he did. Such strength. What are your memories of that time? I mean... I were you putting your arm around him? Did you speak game, to him? And I spoke to him. I spoke to him after after the game. I spoke to him in the morning after the game. His emotions were flying with everyone. You know, I was emotional going into the press conference afterwards. I, I'm writing my book about having a tear with uh, Michelle Farah, um, my PA. You know, just bumping into her before I went in the press conference. I had to go to the world's press in this Titanic game. We'd just been knocked out with all them things. And I see them crying their eyes out with Joe and I just burst into tears myself because I could see where they felt about how I felt really, but I couldn't do that. But I had to, you know, gather me thoughts before I went in through that door and then face the, the media um, on that night. So that was, uh, that was tough. That was tough doing that. But I was proud of the way the boys had played. So um, it was, it was quite. Do you remember what you said to them to? put that behind you as a squad, as a team, yeah. to go forwards positively. Well, you, you have to put that. Uh, there wasn't much said after in the dressing room. There, th th that wasn't the time to... Everyone Everyone was just so gutted. I just, I think the, my words to them were, were I, was, I was, your country would be proud of you. Uh, the way we performed with 10 men, you know, for that length of time. Young Michael, what he did on the day, he announced himself for that goal, didn't he, to the world. And, and played so well, so maturely in not having to take him off. I kept Alan Shearer and him on and he, he did the job on that right hand side. You know, all, all the individual performance, I said, they'd, they'd be proud of you and you should be proud of yourself. And, uh, and that was it after the game. There was no, you can't go into any reasons why, blah, blah, blah. They put a fantastic, a titanic performance in and we didn't get the little bit of good fortune. You know, on the penalty shootout, when your opponents miss like they did, the most important penalty is the next one. You score that, then you pile so much pressure. And that opportunity was there and we missed it. They missed, we missed. And that was that moment where you think, ah, oh, when you look back, that was the, the, the time when I think we'd have gone through. But that's where you have to take them opportunities. I, I often think about your managerial career, Glenn, as um, like, there's a great analogy by the old... Um, 
GE leader, uh, Jack Welsh, where he says when he was a young, um, a young manager, he blew up a factory and he was worried about getting sacked. And when he went to his manager, he said, I'm not going to sack you. You just had the most expensive lesson you could ever learn in life. <laughs> and when I think about you in 98, you had the situation beforehand with Paul Gascoigne leaving him out. And then in the tournament, you had the David Beckham incident and got knocked out. What did you learn from that that made you a better manager? The only thing I think you can learn is that you have to do things because you feel they're right at the time. You 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 have to experience those things, whether that you're right and wrong, but it's the decision that you have to make that you feel is right at the time. Gaza was left out at the time because of his in- injuries, really. The, the press didn't want to hear that when I named the squad. It was more about the story that it was going to be, but it was... The story you know, what, that he smashed up your hotel room, though. Well, he, again, he thumped the door with his hand, with his wrist. That was it. That was it. So that's how, you know, the, hey, listen, perception's better than the real thing, isn't it, <laughs> when it comes to yeah. stories. What, what so, did you actually say to him in that, in that hotel well, room? Well, it wasn't just Gazza. I had, eight, I had seven other players that I had to talk to and I wanted to talk to them face to face and tell them face to face you know I think that was the way to do it that's the way I would have liked to have had it done if I was playing so that's that's what we did and um but Paul Paul really was the saddest case I've ever had to tell not the the toughest decision the saddest decision because um it played in all the, the the qualifying games he'd done well when he was fit I'd had that chat with him about six months before when we had just qualified I think we were playing Cameroon I don't think he was fit but I had a chat with him and said to him, look, you're up at Middlesbrough, you've got to get yourself fit. He had a knee and a calf problem. I said, "You, this is a World Cup. It made you in 1990. You're still good enough to have a wonderful World Cup. So the plan was to keep him, obviously. I mean, the last person I'd have wanted to leave out. But at the end of the day, he was struggling with his fitness. And that was the problem. And that was a, that was a sort of a problem as an England manager as well, because you're leasing the car. They're not yours. You know, they go away to their to their clubs and then you get them back for two weeks and then they go away again. You can't be with them every day. So I knew he was struggling with it, but I gave him right until the last game, Morocco. And I thought, just get through the game, guys. I just said, just get through this game. And unfortunately he got, he got carried off with a hematoma, um, which was going to be out for another two and a half weeks. The guys tell me what with his knee and his calf, I just couldn't take the risk. And it was down to injury at the end of the day. So that was the saddest decision I had to make. But, um, you know, there are things that you have to, you make the decisions because you think it's the right thing at the time for the squad. If I'd have felt he'd have had any chance of playing, then I would have took him. I reckon it would have been, we'd have had to get to the, probably the semi-finals before he was maybe even might have been fit. So, you know, that was a decision I had to make and it was a tough one. It was a tough one, but not the toughest. The toughest is letting youngsters go at Swindon when they're, you're telling them you can't, you know, you're not going to be a pro. That was the toughest. So that, that was early in my management career. So anything after that was going to be a, a little bit easier. And it was. So do you feel those experiences, like we were talking off air before around when you first went into Swindon at four, within mm. four weeks, you were having to shatter mm. the dreams of yeah. these 18 year old boys. Yeah. How did you learn to do that while still retaining the, your basic decency and humanity. To be honest, that was a massive shock to me. I mean, when you get asked to go and be a manager, go from a player to a footballer, to go to Swindon, you're thinking, right, you're thinking about the team. They were down the bottom, so we had to get safe first. 
There's eight games to go. Thinking about the training, you think about what quality of the players have we got, you know. Then the youth team manager comes in and said, look, Glenn, in April we've got this, we've got to tell the players that are, and I hadn't seen that many of them play. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to give them my, and I remember watching a couple of youth games, it was from reserve games that I played. So I had to do that as well, just to, but it was only three games or so. I had to go with really what, what the youth team manager was saying and, and what the people that had already seen them, the reserve team manager. So it was a little bit of, hmm, not idea, but the decision of actually sitting them down in the, in the office with them and going through and then breaking down, you know, in front of you, that was the toughest thing. And I'm thinking, I've only been manager five weeks. It was a real shock to me. It really was. But then it was only then that I started to think, you know what? These guys are too young. They're too young, 18 years of age. Some of them were like skinny, just had a, 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 you know, a growth spurt. One of them had been injured for a year before. He was never going to be able to show, show how good he was. And it was then that a little seed went in my mind then that one day I'm going to put an academy together for players that are, that are going to be released from clubs because you can bet your bottom dollar. The one thing in football, every single year in every club in Europe, there's a conveyor belt of players being released. Because there's only like not even one percent of the players get through and signed, so I'm thinking, what a wastage to give them a second chance, to give them that extra time that they need. Some, you know, like your Wayne Rooney's and your Michael Owens, your Rio Ferdinands, they're easy to spot at 18, but there's so many that can mature later, or there's reasons why they haven't uh, produced because of injury or men mentally they're not strong enough. At 18, if we all think back to when we were 18, Carl, we're different, <laughs> completely different, weren't we? So that was then I thought, I'm going to do something about that later in my career. And it was that day when I reflected and thought, it's too early. It's too early. And, and, and I proved that over the years, actually. There was a couple of players I was going to release. And as soon as I said they were going to release, you know what? They started to play incredibly well. Wayne Sullivan was one of them at Swindon. And in the end, he got a contract. And I moved on to Chelsea and Johnny Gorman took over as manager at Swindon. I remember watching at Anfield, Wayne Sullivan playing and two months before the end of that season when I was manager, when we got promotion, we'd said we were going to release him, but we we're going to, he was going to play every reserve game so the scouts could watch him to get another team. And in the end, because the chains came off him, he was so anxious and worried about getting a contract. He played unbelievable, Jake. It's a great lesson there, isn't there? Absolutely. And we went, Give him a year's contract, see how he does. And he was playing at Anfield, at Old Trafford. He got himself, and I was looking on the telly going, well done, son. I yeah. felt so proud what he did. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant. But it just shows you sometimes about the anxiety of a young player as well. You don't know yourself. You're nowhere near knowing yourself at 18. And there's so many stresses and anxieties about contracts and trying to play and all going in with the first team or whatever, all the managers here. I went through it. I remember Bill Nicholson, if he was walking down the corridor, I was looking for a, a you know, I was looking for a cubby, a cubby hole or a broom <laughs> cupboard to dive into, get out of the way, because you're intimidation, really. But, you know, these all the things that as a youngster you go through that stop you actually performing. And it was a lovely uh, lesson for me, and it was great to see Wayne. The power of the chains off, eh? We always finish with some quick-fire questions. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you say are your three non-negotiables? for living a high performance life what are the three values that you hold most dear touching on what i was saying one i've come straight to mind is to be honest with yourself 
I think, until you can be honest with yourself, you can't be honest with anyone else. Um, I've learned that over the years. Um, maximize your performance, if you like. If it doesn't work, but you've given everything, you know, I'm useless at crosswords, but if I've given everything and I can't do any better, I've done my best. So I think give everything. I think it's a bit of a fallacy sometimes that we think hard work, you've got to work hard to achieve. Not necessarily. You might be doing the wrong thing working hard to achieve. I think if you go within, you'll find out what you can achieve. So go within yourself a little bit, what we've been speaking about as well. Yeah. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why? Well, having that enlightenment, I think when I was younger, at some stage in my twenties would have been, would have been magnificent for me. So yeah, I would like to have had that enlightenment. What I've, what I've, hey, listen, I've still got lots and lots and lots to learn and, and to go on, but, but that would have been special for me. And I think that, I just think you know, if people like Jake, you made a great point. What are you going to lose if you, if anyone out there, youngster, car, dear, believe me, if you can tap into it and find yourself and find out who you are and really what you are and go on that road, that journey, phew, life will become so much different for you. We had a guest actually, and um, we asked her about when people don't believe this kind of stuff, as in they're not interested in pursuing or exploring and her phrase was she said how's cynicism working out for you and it's a good point isn't <laughs> it's a it? good you know? point. what's cynicism going to do for you um how important is legacy to you glenn well again as i've said I, 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 legacy for anyone let's let's look at the top business people in the world multi-millionaires and the most successful sports people whatever yeah we've, we've put an imprint we've put a little imprint on this planet but it's not your legacy is deep down inside it's what you what you've uh, how you've achieved things how you've treated people they're the things that go on they're the things you take with you if you if you like it if, if you want to say it's a spirit if you want to say your consciousness whatever i believe that's they're the things you take with you mm, the other stuff is left down here so your legacy is is how you treat people what advice would you give to a teenage glenn who's just starting out on his journey on a, on, his, on a football career listen but taking what you feel is good for you, decide yourself what's right for you. But listen, don't have a closed mind that you won't listen to anyone. I took a lot of advice and things in, but I decided what suited me as a player uh, and what didn't. So I would say that is the most, you know, and that's again, being yourself, being true to yourself. Now there's... 10 years, 15, 20 years later, you might change your mind on something that you've made when you're 18 or a youngster trying to make it. Um, and the other thing I'd say to a young kid, without a doubt, without a doubt, and I wish I'd have, wish there was a pill for it, and there isn't a pill for it, is fear. A sportsman with fear is, you're going to debilitate yourself. You have to nullify the fear. And as a kid, we're, there's fear, the chains that we're talking about. If you can take your, the fear out of you, you would be amazed at what you can achieve. And I think looking back, that's, that's one big thing that I would, uh, that I would look back and change. We all had fears and there were things that we didn't really need to worry about in the end, guys, you know, and, and that's experience teaches you that. But if you could have that when you were younger, my word, you're the world's your oyster. Fantastic. And the final question is always in this podcast. Um, it's kind of your final message really for the people that have sat and listened to, 
this hour or so we've had in each other's company is your one golden rule for living a high performance life. What is the, what's the one kind of North star for you in your life? Well, I don't know about high performance. I know that's the words we're talking about, but yeah, just love each other. That's the, it's the, it's the most beautiful thing you can do is love each other. It's easy to love your kids, isn't it? But it's a bit tougher to, uh, to go down that road. But I think that's what, what I've been talking about all day is really what I think we're talking about. That purity, that consciousness inside us, that spirituality is about love, kindness, all them things are really important in this day and age, especially at the moment. After we come through COVID, we all seem to get a little bit closer to that love for each other, didn't we? Because we're all in the same boat around the world. But unfortunately, I'm not sure we've learned too much about it. We're politics and what we're seeing now straight away soon after this uh, dreadful pandemic which should have pulled us all together you know um unfortunately i think we're just slipping back into into the old ways i couldn't agree more and glenn thank you so much for sitting and talking with us there'll Absolutely. be people that would have Pleasure. tuned into that thinking oh i'll i'll hear a conversation about the good old tottenham days <laughs> and, you know but as always on this podcast it's a conversation with some people think a former footballer, but as we know it, it's a conversation with a human being. And yeah. that is what this is about. It's a, a human conversation about life. So Definitely. thank you for being so Well, open. thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Every minute of it. Thank you. Cheers. Damien. Jake. What did you think of that? Just really taken by his bravery, if I'm honest. I mean, a man that went through the ringer like he did for sharing some of his thoughts about beliefs 20 years ago, to have the courage to come on and talk about it so openly and candidly and personally was a, was a real privilege to listen to. And look, we both know the way the world works and how some people will react to this. And there will be people that are going, what are you talking about? Spirituality, we live on, the, you know, the earth is a, or the world is a, is kind of a, an illusion. But it's okay for him to think that and for you to think something different. We, we can't live in a world where we pillory people for having a different opinion. And it feels to me like we're getting more polarised in our opinions and we seek out those that agree with us and we shoot down those that don't. And uh, all we really ask for, for people listening to this is just to be open-minded, be tolerant of others. Yep. Glenn was at pains there to emphasise, and I think it was based on that previous experience of, he wasn't suggesting that there was a right or a wrong answer. He wasn't suggesting he's got information that the rest of us don't possess. It's just based on his experiences of having 40 years of exploring this topic, having had that traumatic experience of a cardiac arrest. These are some of the conclusions that he's reaching. And I think, like you quoted Mel Robbins to him before, well, how's cynicism working for you? Yeah. You know, you, we can all be cynical. We can all sort of laugh at it or pick it to pieces. Or instead we can open our mind like he urges any young player to do and pick out the bits that might be helpful for you. And I feel um kind of jealous of his mindset. I, you know, he, he seems centered. He seems serene. He seems, as he said, like the shackles are off. It, it's almost like he's seen the light. Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about this, don't they? That I think it's a shame that sometimes it's it, like, we can all think of people that maybe have driven recklessly for years, had a car crash and been more courteous behind a wheel or someone's had a serious accident and then becomes a kinder, more considerate person. And I often think it's a shame that it can often take us a trauma like that to go and reflect. Whereas why don't we learn from Glenn's trauma to still do that reflection without having to go to those dark places ourselves. It's a great point. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jake.
Right, time to meet some more listeners to the High Performance Podcast. And not just listeners on this occasion, we are joined by fellow podcasters. So we had a really nice email from Mr. Williams from Hatherop Castle School, who got in touch to say that some of his pupils have created their own podcast inspired by high performance. So welcome to the show, Margot, Cal, Hugo and Charlie. Hi, guys. Hi. How are you all? Very well, nice. thank you. Tell me, are you delighted to be missing lessons to speak to us? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and for those of you listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but we're doing it over Zoom and the smiles on their faces when we talk about missing a lesson are quite something. So we've got Cal, Hugo and Charlie, who are all in year seven. We've got Margot, who's in year six. We've already established that Margot is in charge. So may- maybe, Margot, you should start by just explaining how this all came to be. So what's going on? So we have this new lesson called Hobbies, which we choose. And we thought that Heather at Castle podcast would be a really fun decision to do. Um, and we've interviewed quite a lot of people and we kind of take turns of interviewing them. And we all interview, but mostly like four maybe take control. So tell us about some of the people you've interviewed then, Margot, and um, what are the big lessons you've learned from them? So we've interviewed a guy called Jamie Bulch. He has been in the Olympics um, and I wasn't actually there, but I heard a lot from him and everyone's been talking about him and found him really inspiring. Sounds great. And Cal, tell me, what's the link to high performance? Like, were you listening to our podcast? Was Mr. Williams listening to the podcast? He's the teacher that sent us the message. Well, yeah. So Mr. Williams, he's kind of been like, I think he's been a fan for a while now. And like... I like the sound of Mr. Williams, by the way. Great taste. Great taste. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He really liked the stuff you guys did and he thought it would be really cool if like we as a school kind of did something similar to that. So ours was called like the positivity podcast, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of like, you kind of like, the ones that inspired us to do it. And and Charlie, what's it like having conversations about positivity? Because look, it's clearly been a long time since Damien and I were at school, but positivity and mindset and resilience and mental fortitude, it wasn't really discussed when we were at school. So how has it been having conversations about these kinds of topics? It's been really good, like listening to them and all their achievements we've also heard like what they've been through to get to their point where they are now. So to, to be a pro athlete or to be whatever they are, what they prefer doing, it doesn't just happen like that all, all of a sudden. You need work and work to get to that point. It's great that. What I'd love to do is go down the line, starting with you, Margot, and I would just like you to tell the people listening to this sort of one message that you've picked up that you'd like them to take into their lives, whether it's kind of being happy or focusing on the good things or whatever it is that springs to mind. I'd love you to share it. Um, Well, the message I would say is just be the best you can be and just keep working hard. That's all, that's all you can do. And don't try to be someone else. Just be you. Brilliant. I love that. Who wants to go next? Mine kind of leads on to Margot's point. So like be yourself and don't let other people like bring you down because we're all unique. You're all, we're kind of like in our own world when it comes to sports. So just keep on thinking of your achievements to, and then and then hopefully it'll come true. Wonderful. 
Um, mine would probably be like in your career, you will always have obstacles to overcome and don't let those obstacles bring you down. Just think of them as like another step to, towards being the best you can be. I think I'm sort of the same with Cal. Like the negative will always drive you and push you to do better. Brilliant. And what about and what about you, Mr. Williams? What what messages have you taken away from the podcast series that you've done? I think for for me, we've spoken a lot around um, obviously as, as from you can see from the children developing and being the best you can be. You know whether that's through accountability, uh, whether it's through empathy, resilience, determination, um, just an authenticity to make sure you can be and willingness to be yourself. A lot of um, people we've spoken to have spoken about moments they're proud of. They've spoken about challenges with for example social media and everything else that goes with it which have been fantastic lessons um for the guys in the room and for, for others that have been part of the podcast series amazing and to be hearing that these conversations are going on in schools is quite something so thank you so much mr williams for listening to the podcast and then doing the exact thing that we ask people to do which is pass it on and you are clearly passing it on to Margot, to cal to Hugo and to Charlie. So well done to you. And kids, thank you so much for joining us on High Performance. It's been brilliant to speak to you. It makes me feel positive about the future, yeah? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Damien. Listen, mate, have a good week. Um, And a huge thanks to you, of course, for listening to today's episode of High Performance. Listen, we have a members club. We've got tens of thousands of members. They're getting weekly emails, giving them an injection of positivity. They're getting book recommendations. They're getting keynote speeches. They're getting high performance boosts. They're getting exclusive pod episodes. It's all there and it's all free. And if you want it, then all you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, click on circle, join the high performance circle and be part of a movement of people getting deeper and closer to high performance than ever before to the hundreds of thousands of you that have downloaded this podcast in the last few days a million thanks to those of you around the world who have stumbled across this podcast from all corners of the globe you are also especially welcome have a brilliant week everyone big thanks to finn ryan from rethink audio to hannah to will to eve to Gemma, of course to glenn hoddle as well but the biggest thanks goes to you at home for growing and sharing this podcast among your community please continue to spread the learnings that you're taking from this series remember there is no secret It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon.